Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Edwin Adelson on Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? David Chen, I am so happy to hear your voice again, and, and you know, I, I'm not... You know, I get a lot of emails, and, and you people may know this because you send them in to me about how you massacre my name every week. Oh, that's right. Someone has given me a hard time for mispronouncing your name every single week. And, and I'm going to have it as part of a podcast story, but, but just, to, just to kind of calm down the, the angry, angry feelings out there in the public is that I myself am not really sure how to pronounce my name, uh, and you'll see how this ties in with Edward Adelson. Um, I always thought my name was Tobolowski, but people in my family say Tobolowski, Tobolowski, Toblowski. I've never been really sure. And, and I found out some very interesting things about names, David. And, and this has to do with Tobolowski, is that when my grandfather came over from the old country, he came from an area of Poland in which you only had a first name. And his name was Abraham. And when the Poles decided to institute a national tax, they added on the area from which you came, which would be Abram Tobolovskov. And that was his name, Abram Tobolovskov. That means he was from Tobolovskov. Um, so actually that name is not really his name or my name. But we'll talk about that later. But I was doing a scene with Anita Gillette on Law & Order. Anita was playing the judge. And we started this, the scene, and it kind of began the way you started today with Edward Adelson. Excuse me, Stephen, is it Edwin Adelson or Adelson? How do you do it? And I realized I had no idea how to pronounce my name. Because when, <laughs> when you're an actor, you usually don't say your name. Right. You just you just see it in the script and you count up how many lines you have. At least that's what I do. So I had no idea and I had to actually go to the writers uh on Law and Order to ask uh how I pronounce my name. Adelson. Adelson. It's Edwin Adelson. And that's uh, right. A lot the, of people the, Yep. And, and I'm very happy about that role because that was actually uh one of the pedophiles I played that didn't sing and dance. Excellent. I Excellent. just blew up and exploded in a fire. <laughs> Well, Stephen, it's been quite some time for our podcast aye, listeners, aye, aye. Uh, for our podcast listeners at TobolaskiFiles.com since they've heard us, uh, you know, do the Tobolaski Files. And in yes. that time, I would dare say a lot has transpired. I have started attending graduate school, and you, my friend, have received a book deal from Simon and Schuster based on the Tobolaski Files. So congratulations for that. And, and congratulations to you, David, my friend. Thank you. And uh, so a lot of stuff has been going on, and now we're finally back. But uh, it's been really difficult for me, especially, to navigate you know, all the things that I'm doing with my scheduling and with my, yes. with my master's degree. Um, how have you found the last couple of months that we've been off? Well, it's funny. In, in the period we've been off, I know that other people have the idea that we're doing nothing, but actually, I was busy doing three different book proposals and interviewing with publishers. You've been doing classes. Uh, I've been writing stories for for this group of podcasts, and I find the 
process of writing stories very time-consuming, and sometimes I'm up all night, sometimes I'm up at dawn. Uh, as you know, David, I'm kind of an early riser, but this particular story happened, started the other night. I, I, I was up late the other night, and I, of course, picked up my friend, the television changer, in a desperate attempt to find something interesting enough to put me to sleep. The normal television programs at this time were done, and I surfed through the meager pickings. There was a channel with a man selling coins, and then there was a rebroadcast of the news, making it not news, but it was still kind of watchable in a very strange existential way. There was an infomercial for a hose attachment that could clean your car and the side of your house. And then there was a horrible TV channel where they showed people actually getting liposuction. And I kept flipping. And then in a turn that I can only describe as dumb luck, I hit upon something remarkable. It was a rerun of a show called Storm Stories. And the scene opened up with video footage taken from a helicopter of what seemed to be the almost complete wreckage of a town in the Midwest. It looked like a drawer filled with clothes, cars, and wood chips had been taken out of some gigantic dresser, shaken and strewn across the countryside, and a man was standing in front of a pile of rubble that I assume used to be his home, and he was being interviewed. He spoke in a surprisingly calm and clear voice, and he said, everything was gone, they just found the body of his dog in the branches of a tree, they still hadn't found his grandmother. And they were all praying for her. And then he looked at the camera and almost smiled and said, at least I saved this. And he held up a guitar. And he said, I have no idea how it made it. I had it since high school. And then in an unexpected moment, he lost his composure. And he said, and I found these. And he held up a photo album and a handful of loose pictures. And he began to cry. He sobbed as he held the pictures to his chest, and a woman came into frame and put her arm around him, and they stood wrapped up in an army blanket in the middle of a field, in the middle of nothing, holding a guitar, the pictures, and now each other. It's hard to have priorities in the middle of a storm, but I think that little scene perfectly described my vision of the universe. I've always been a big fan of the photo album. I've always thought that it pretty much was a no-brainer that you could define your life as the people, the places, the things that affected you, the things we chronicle and the pictures we save. And then I started to wonder, what if the picture doesn't matter at all? Maybe the images of the people, places, and things we keep in frames on our desk and albums in the open envelopes in our drawers just serve as a marker for something else, something invisible. What if all photography was really Curlian photography? You remember that was the, the photographs that became famous in the 70s for showing spirits and auras. What if an ordinary Polaroid, without the benefit of fancy equipment and high voltage, had the ability to reveal an unseen world? And that, of course, <laughs> raises the question, is there an unseen world? Well, I was shocked when I read a couple months ago that a group of scientists had published a study that suggested that there just may be. The study was a result of observing more than 12,000 patients for over 60 years. And the bottom line was that very much of what we feel, what we do, and what we think 
is not based on the stuff of our memories, but comes from something equally invisible. Contagion. Not the type of contagion we associate with the flu or a flock of germs, but a brain-altering influence that's as hard to track as a pathogen and more lasting. Apparently, our human chemistry is so tuned into what happens around us that we catch whatever is in our vicinity. If we hang out with people who party, we will party more. If we hang out with people with good work habits, we will be more self-disciplined. If we hang out with rock and roll musicians, we will fall in love with groupies. Not because of any real attachment, but because we have caught a fever by proximity. But the study went deeper than that. They found that profoundly negative emotions are also contagious. Blame and shame are passed around like mono at a high school dance. Not just within a family, but in a community and eventually in the entire society as a whole. And they use this to explain everything from fads to political movements, to national guilt. Scientists showed that over the three generations studied that you could diagram the pattern of contagion, of depression, and emotional isolation, and it had the same epidemiological footprint as the spread of polio. All of this meant, in a way, that the major guiding force of our lives is not choice or even luck, but suggestibility. I didn't bring that up as an explanation of why I ended up buying the hose nozzle that can clean the side of my house. But as a question, is contagion a real part of our world? Are we trying to chronicle the things that affected us or infected us in our photo albums? And if contagion exists, as a side note, is it perhaps an explanation of how actors do what they do? How does an actor portray another person? They have a simple and almost insurmountable problem. The actor is always real. The project they work on is always a fiction. Somehow the actor has to try to fuse some of his realness into the work of fiction so it will be credible. He tries to attach himself, perhaps by contagion, to the ideas and feelings in a script to make his words and actions ring true. However, in the process... Does the actor risk reverse contagion? That the fiction will come back and infest him and alter his life. Now, one could point to the string of broken lives that have lined the road to and from Hollywood as proof of this effect. Had I been aware of this study in 1988, when I found out that I got the part of Clayton Townley in Mississippi Burning, directed by Alan Parker, I would have been more cautious. I had a uniquely complicated version of the reality-slash-fiction-slash-contagion equation to deal with. I was a real person, that's me, Stephen, involved with a story that was fiction, Mississippi Burning. But, you know, it was one of those movies that was, quote, based on true events, end quote. And within that subset, I was playing a real man, Clayton Townley, who was really the head of the Ku Klux Klan. How could I possibly infuse my reality into a man whose very life was centered around conspiracy? A man who was not only a white supremacist, but someone who knew that other men were beaten or murdered at his behest and could still look himself in the mirror and tie a perfect Windsor knot without his hand shaking. I had no idea where to start. Side note. This was the first major role in a major film I had ever gotten. 
and I was ambushed by a very important lesson that I will now pass along to all the young actors out there. In theater, when you're cast, you usually go right into what they call the rehearsal period. That's where the process of transformation or contagion begins. Film doesn't have that. In its place, you have two days in which you call up everyone you ever knew and tell them you got a part in a movie, followed by complete mental and emotional collapse. I had packed my bags. I kissed Anne, the pooch, and Coco, the insane cat, goodbye. The car came by to take me to the airport. You can almost hear the strains of John Denver singing in the background. I told Anne not to be sad. I would be back in a couple weeks, and Anne looked at me calmly and became very distant. She just said, no, you won't. I left. In my weakened mental state, I decided not to go straight to Mississippi. I left a couple days early for a quick visit with my family, my mom and dad, my brother, in Dallas. I thought that hanging out with mom and dad after getting a big job would boost my sense of security. Was I out of my mind? What was I thinking? When do we learn? Guess what? We don't. It's contagion. We keep coming back for more. It's an unwritten rule. The family has the unique type of vision that enables them to see the potential failure in anything you do. They're like low-level superheroes. With the best of intentions, they can look at your life and in a matter of seconds can tell you where you went wrong. My plane landed in Dallas. Mom and Dad met me at the gate. Now remember, this is all pre-9-11. Dad asked how long I was going to be working. I told him two weeks. He said, what, two weeks or 2000 a week? Then you're unemployed again? Well, that won't pay the bills. Mom joined in. And, and what are you playing? I said, Mom, I'm playing the head of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, Stephen, no. That's terrible. Do they know you're Jewish? I said, Mom, I don't think they care. It's just a movie. Dad said, well, as soon as they see your name, Tobolowsky, they're going to guess you're Jewish. You know, Stephen, you could change your name if you have to. I said, Dad, I don't want to change my name. It's too hard on the credit card companies. Mom was sympathetic. She said, maybe when this is done, you can go back and get your teaching degree or be a waiter. I said, Mom, teachers don't make any money either, and they have to grade papers. And frankly, I don't have the organizational skills to be a waiter. And Dad finished me off with, well, I've never heard of Alan Parker before. Any chance you can get back together with Beth? And this was before I even got my luggage. We got home, and Mom started in with her famous listing of the beverages she could get me. Slight diversion. Mom's list of beverages over time never got shorter. They only got longer and longer, and it went something like this. I would come home, I would sit down, and Mom would say, Steppy Doors, what can I get you to drink? We have Coke, Dr. Pepper, Sprite, Diet Dr. Pepper, Diet Sprite, coffee, tea, water, orange juice. We have a beer, or I can make some lemonade. And, and you couldn't preempt the list by making a request for a drink because Mom would counter your request with, Are you sure? Because we have a Coke, Dr. Pepper, Sprite, Diet Dr. Pepper, Diet Sprite, coffee, tea, a beer, orange juice, and so on and so forth. And you couldn't interrupt the list or mom would have to start over. Over time, the list expanded to include fruit. Stepping doors, we have Coke, Dr. Pepper, Sprite, Diet Dr. Pepper, coffee, tea, water, a beer, lemonade, grapes, apples, a banana. And in the years before her death, the list expanded one more time to include bread, 
meat, and popsicles. Sidebar to the diversion. It's amazing and exasperating, but I have to say it now, thinking back on mom and the list of beverages. It always makes me smile. And in her absence, it's crazy. But it's the one thing I miss the most. Back to my story. After I got a Coke to drink, I went to my little bedroom where I had the same little bed I had in my childhood with the same pillows and the same blanket, and I unpacked and put my clothes in the little chest of drawers, and I realized what everyone realizes when they come back home for a visit. I had to get out of this place. I had to do something quickly or answer more questions about Beth and beverages, and then I got a great idea. I could kill two birds with one stone. I could get out of the house and do some scholarly research on my part in the two days I was going to be in Dallas before I headed off to Mississippi. And I remember from my college days, it was back in the early 70s, back when people thought books were cool. One of the fun things we would do is check out all the new little bookstores. And there was this one place I wandered into by the campus, uh, by SMU, called the American Opinion Bookstore. And the store itself was bright and clean. I went inside, I picked out a book to look at, and I was shocked at how anti-black and anti-Jewish it was. Now, I'm not saying this was a Klan bookstore. I don't think there is such a thing. But if you were a member of the Klan and you just happened to be strolling down the sidewalk one Sunday afternoon happened to cruise into this place to check out the books, you would probably not be offended by anything you read. I looked it up in the yellow pages, and lo and behold, it still existed. But it wasn't by SMU anymore like it was in my era. Now it was out in Garland, Texas, about a 30-minute drive. I was heading down the highway trying to check the buildings for addresses. No bookstore. And where the bookstore should have been, there was an auto repair shop, more specifically, a transmission repair shop. And I was about to call it a day when a little voice inside of my head said, wait a minute, take a look. I parked my car. I walk over to the transmission shop. The place was a wreck, gears and casings and grease and hard-looking men in coveralls working in several garage bays. And I walked up and they stopped working and they looked at me. And one man said, can we help you? I said, uh, yes, sir. I, I thought there was a bookstore around here. I looked it up in the yellow pages, and it said it was at this address. The man didn't answer. He stared at me hard and then moved his eyes to the side and gestured with his thumb. And I looked, and there at the back of the garage bays, behind all of the machinery, there was an open doorway with a hand-painted sign above it that said, American Opinion Bookstore. I thanked him. I walked back through the garage, past all the mechanics, walked into the room, and there was no one there. It was a white room with gray industrial carpeting and wall-to-wall books. I walked over to one shelf, and I picked out something at random, and it was a book comparing blacks to monkeys. And yay, I put it back on the shelf. And I took out another book, and it was about how Jews were running the world. So I decided to buy the book about blacks and monkeys. I called for a cashier, but no one was there. I went back out to the garage and asked if one of the men who was working could come back and help me. He stopped and looked at me and said that there was a sheet of paper in there, and if I wanted anything from the store, I should read it and follow the instructions. 
I went back into the room and looked around and saw a table with a piece of paper taped to it. The paper had two short sentences. The first said, you have just been videotaped. I looked up and I saw a camera pointing at me above the table and I quickly turned around. I noticed there were cameras in every corner of the room. The second sentence said, if I was interested in a book, I needed to fill out an information form. I saw a clipboard on the shelf behind the table with the forms. The form asked for my name, my address, phone number, how I found the store, why I found the store. If I knew the names of anyone who recommended the store, I paused. Now I had the beginnings of a fear about how to proceed. I didn't want to put down my address in California, and I certainly didn't want to put down my address here in Dallas and implicate mom and dad. Then I realized I couldn't use my name. Like Dad said at the airport, as soon as they saw T-O-B-O-L-O-W, Tobolowsky, they would guess I was Jewish. In the end, I took a book. I look at the dust jacket for the price and put some cash on the counter. And for my name, and perhaps my first symptom of contagion, I wrote down Clayton Townley, address Mississippi. I didn't read the book in Dallas as I had planned. I was afraid mom would see it and it would distress her. In a couple days, it was time to head out to Jackson and I wanted to read the book on the plane, but I didn't take it out of my bag. I was too embarrassed by the cover. I was learning the lesson of those who live in conspiracy. They use the weapons of shame. I arrived in Mississippi. I was nervous. I settled into my hotel room at the Holiday Inn in Jackson, made my way to the hotel bar. Alan Parker was holding court surrounded by several actors, and he greeted me with that trademark Alan gruffness. I got the first word that my big scene, the Ku Klux Klan rally, would not be shot at the end of the week as planned, but would be delayed because of weather. Alan told me to relax. I probably have enough time in Mississippi to forget my lines and relearn them again. I finished my beer and headed to my room. I called Anne and told her I may be in a holding pattern because of approaching thunderstorms. I would be on location longer than two weeks. There was a silence on the other end of the line, and then Anne said in a small, resigned voice, I knew it. I'm scared. I'm scared when you're gone. I told her I loved her. More silence. We hung up. And suddenly, I felt cut off from everything. I was in Mississippi, but I wasn't going to be working. Anne was depressed and seemed far away. I got ready for bed, turned out the lights. I walked over to the window and opened up the blinds. There were only a few stars. The moon was almost entirely engulfed in shadow. In the emptiness, my mind remembered the game Beth and I always played, looking up at the stars at the same time of night. And then I remembered she was supposed to be here in Jackson. And I wondered with my extra time if I would run into her or call her. And I became terrified of the conspiracies in my own heart. I lay down in bed. There were some drunk southern boys down the hall somewhere. Instead of being irritated, I figured out it was God's way of telling me it wasn't time for bed. So I turned on the bedside light again. I sat up and something caught my eye. 
the yellow pages. I picked it up and casually made my way through the A's and B's. You know, it's very hard to look up things in the yellow pages. They never have anything where you expect it to be. Golf could be under sport. Ice cream could be under confections. But nevertheless, I found what I was looking for. The American Opinion Bookstore. There was one here, too. I decided to take a field trip. It was noon the next day when I got in my rental car and set out on my adventure. After I got directions at a filling station, I was on a two-lane highway headed out of Jackson. I drove for half an hour. I was in the middle of what looked like farm country. Not much of anything. There was a feed store and then a totesum, which, if you don't know, is a southern version of 7-Eleven. They have cola and chips. And outside, they had a big metal container that said ice. The address indicated that the bookstore should have been right around here somewhere, I stopped at the Totesum to get a Coke and ask for more directions, and then I saw something about a hundred yards away that got my complete attention. A transmission repair shop. I wandered over. There were several open garage bays with parts scattered around in pools of iridescent green oil. The men quit working as they watched me approach. I told them I was looking for a bookstore. One of the men looked at me with suspicion and mumbled, back there. At the end of the car base was an open door. I thanked him. I headed back through the garage and entered the bookstore. There was an older woman sitting behind a table and above her, video cameras. Looked around the room, video camera in every corner. She asked me why I was there and what I wanted. I said I was curious and just wanted to look around. She didn't reply. I wandered around for a moment or two and then pulled out a pamphlet about Negroes in Soviet America. That would do. I bought it. I thanked her. I headed out. I walked quickly to my car. The mechanics watched me as I drove away. A few weeks later, the movie moved its base of operations from Jackson, Mississippi to Lynette, Alabama. And we stayed at a motel that set new standards for low expectations. Everything in the coffee shop was fried. I have never felt so lucky to have indoor plumbing. One rainy day, I was lying in bed watching television, if that's what you can call it. They had one working channel. During the afternoon, they aired an apparently endless program that featured a man standing in front of wood paneling reading from the Bible. I heard a knock at my door. It was Ken. Ken played a federal agent in the movie, but more importantly, in all of my downtime, Ken was determined to teach me how to play golf. <laughs> and for that... Uh, Blessings or curses to Ken. Ken came in with a bottle of bourbon in his hand and pointed to the TV, and he said, well, I can't watch this guy anymore. You want to go hit some balls? I said, Ken, are you kidding? They don't have spaghetti around here. You think they're going to have a driving range? And Ken said, hey, check it out. You have a yellow pages. Look under amusements. And I looked at the bottom shelf of my bedside table, and there it was. Yellow pages for Lynette, Alabama. A slender volume to be sure. I pulled it out, and there it was, another American Opinion bookstore. I said, Ken, you feel like checking something out? We cruised through the piney woods on the Georgia-Alabama border. We passed a few miles of nothing, and I looked at the address, and I figured we had to be right on it. And then I saw a totesome convenience store with the big blue sign selling ice. Wow. Ken said, what? I said, a totesome. He says, well, it's the only place around here you get ice. 
They have a million totesums. I pulled over to the side of the road. I said, yeah, but look, this one is next door to a transmission shop. And there it was, another garage next to the convenience store. I told Ken to stay in the car. I needed to check something out. I walked up and I saw a sign on the side of the building that said, American Opinion Bookstore. I ran back to the car. Ken asked me what I was looking for. I said, trouble. That night in the motel bar, I'm talking to my fellow actors and I was asking, why transmission shops? I'm saying there's three different states, three different bookstores, and they're always in a garage. We feverishly started exchanging theories as to what it all meant. One said, well, Obviously, the owner of the transmission shops also owned the bookstores. It's simple. Another said they were using the transmission shops as a cover. It was also a good way to monitor people coming into the bookstore and protect whatever was really in there. And I mentioned the video cameras in the store, but what were they protecting? And finally, someone mentioned a notion even more sinister. Transmissions were large. They're shipped in big cases. Perhaps the cases could be used to smuggle contraband across state lines without suspicion. I suddenly realized, without being aware of it, conspiracy had silently become the center of my life. It was contagion, and now I was spreading it through the cast. Our musings were interrupted by a voice calling out, Oh, I hear you're the man I need to meet. A tall, thin fellow made his way to the table, pulled out a chair, said, May I? I said, uh, absolutely. I had no idea who this guy was. He was a young man in his mid to late 20s. He had a shock of red hair. He would have been considered handsome if it weren't for the fact he still had a mild case of acne. He wore a brown corduroy jacket with a flower in his lapel. He sat down, took a sip of beer, and said, I hear you're playing the head of the Ku Klux Klan. I was a little taken aback, but I said, yes, yes, I'm playing Clayton Townley. My name is Stephen. The young man extended his hand. He said, my name is Jefferson. I know it's a bit prehistoric, I'm afraid, but we go with what we're born with. He laughed and took another sip of beer. Jefferson continued, I just wanted to introduce myself. I guess I wanted to do a little what they call quality control. I wanted to meet my counterpart. You see, I'm the head of what we call the new clan. Everyone at the table got very quiet. Jefferson blushed with delight and said, Man, I never get tired of that look on people's faces. They're just amazed when I don't wear a sheet. Eh, don't have one. Won't have one. I just wanted to talk with you and get to know you. And you could get to know me. And maybe we could come to some sort of understanding that I'm not the monster you may think I am. I stammered a little bit and said, well, I, I never intended on playing Clayton Townley as a monster. I think that's one of the points of the movie. Jefferson looked at me and said, Stephen, that may be, but I'm familiar with Hollywood. Yes, it's amazing, but even out here, we know all about it. I know the way our organization will end up being portrayed. Let me put it this way. We don't hate blacks. We're just pro-white. We're no different from any other advocacy group, and this country's filled with them. There are groups for women, for Mexicans, blacks have the NAACP and CORE. I represent a voice that's been mocked and ridiculed for years. Whites. Our schools have been torn apart by integration. 
Our public services have been degraded by quota systems. The mockery of Christian values has allowed drugs and crime back into our neighborhoods. And for all of our efforts, we're called bigots. We are not. We're just another group of Americans who want our grievances heard. Well, I'll get off my soapbox and leave you to you and your friends. I'll be very interested on how this movie turns out. Good luck. Oh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's not the proper thing to say in show business, is it? I meant to say, break a leg. Right? With that, Jefferson sauntered away. He landed at the bar and toasted us, pulled out a pipe from his inside coat pocket, started laughing with his friends as he filled that pipe and lit it and looked like Henry Higgins in a high school production of My Fair Lady. I suddenly felt a knot in my stomach. I didn't know why. Maybe it was the transmission shops or the flower in Jefferson's lapel. Or perhaps it was the way he knew who I was and what role I was playing in the movie. That night I went to my room. I turned out the lights and closed the blinds. I discovered once again in this school we call life. We try to pick our classes, but we can never pick our teachers. Finally, the day arrived for me to shoot the biggest scene I had in the movie, the Torchlight Clan Rally. The scene required anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 extras, and there'd be banners and torches and babies and mayhem. As I mentioned, we had several big rainstorms in the past few weeks, and the ground was soaking wet. We were told to avoid puddles of water, not because we would slip, but because the water moccasins in the area had a hatching and all the babies were swimming in every bit of standing water that was over an inch deep. Our safety coordinator told us that baby moccasins were just as dangerous as the adults. I, of course, already knew this, (laughs) having been one of the co-founders of the Dangerous Animals Club when I was six. I was in the makeup chair and one of the assistant directors came and sat beside me. He told me that there was a rumor that over a 1,000 of the 3,000 extras showed their real Ku Klux Klan cards as ID that night to work on the film. Apparently, the word got out what we were shooting, and they all wanted to be a part of it. My mind went to Jefferson at the bar earlier that week in his warning. I looked at the AD. We had a silent moment of, oh, dear. And then he patted me on the arm and said, but don't worry, they're not armed. We check everybody. We started shooting at around 11 that night. Alan came up to me before we started and said, I hear we have a lot of your people here tonight. I suggest we be careful. The speech is really in two halves. The first half is fairly innocuous, just a lot of the loving Mississippi stuff. We'll only shoot that part with the crowd. And we'll take a break, send everyone home, and shoot the rest of your speech with all the nasty racial bits with you alone in close-up. Sound good? We don't want to insult these people in their own backyard. We started shooting. The feeling in the crowd went from being wary to excited when they realized they were actually in a movie. 
people started cheering and singing. It was turning into quite a party. We did a couple of takes of the opening of the speech. Alan walked up on stage and patted me on the back and said, oh, this is the way to go. Good stuff. Having fun? I said, yes, sir. Good, good. Alan continued, by the way, we are filming the making of Mississippi Burning tonight, so right now, if you could do another little piece of acting, look at me seriously. I did. Now nod as if I just gave you an important note. I frowned, I looked at the ground, then back to Alan where I nodded in agreement. Alan smiled and patted me on the shoulder again and said, that a boy. By the way, it's lovely that our audience seems to be thrilled to be here, isn't it? Keep it up. We started shooting again. The crowd of 2,000 strong was loving every word I said about their state. It was more like a tailgate party than a Klan rally. It was all going very much by the book. After each take, Alan would call cut. The cameras would move to a slightly different angle. And then we would do the first half of the speech again and again and again. And then something unexpected happened. After one take, Alan did not call cut. I didn't know if it was by mistake or by design, but I always learned that as an actor, it was my job to keep going if the director doesn't call cut. So in that split second, I made a decision to move into the second half of the speech, the racist half. And I started preaching about the feebleness of the black race. And suddenly the crowd changed. The party atmosphere stopped, and they erupted, not in protest, but in delight. They cheered. They stomped on the ground. They roared. They screamed, you ought to run for governor. Alan rushed up on stage after that take and whispered to me, well, well, I didn't expect that. I guess they like it. How do you feel about doing the whole speech with the crowd? Your reactions will be much better with them here, much more unpredictable. I nodded to Alan and said, let's go for it. We continued to shoot the entire speech. People tried to touch me on stage. I was like Mick Jagger. In between takes, people rushed up, patted me on the back and said, man, you tell it like it is. Go, man, go. Don't you stop. One man came up to me laughing, said he heard this whole movie was going to be anti-Klan, but this was music to his ears. It was the middle of the night. We had been going for hours, and I was getting a little parched from all the speechifying. And an AD came up on stage and asked if I needed anything, and I said a little tea would do nicely. He turned and yelled for craft services. That's the division that provides food and snacks on a movie set. And he yelled, hey, craft service, we need some tea up here. Mr. Tobolowski needs tea. On that particular night, the only person available to help was a small 14-year-old black boy named Joshua. He walked toward the stage through the crowd, and the AD yelled at him, Didn't you hear me the first time? We need tea. Mr. Tobolowski needs tea. A silence fell on those 2,000 people, and you could feel the hostility toward the teenager grow in a sort of collective contempt. The AD yelled out again, Joshua, Joshua, get over here. Joshua answered quietly, Yes, sir. Joshua, Mr. Tobolowski wants tea. Do you understand? Joshua answered, Yes, sir. The AD turned to me and said, what type of tea would you like, sir? I I stammered, "Uh, Earl Grey. The assistant turned back to Joshua and yelled, Earl Grey, Earl Grey tea, you got that? Yes, sir. The AD turned to me again, was very polite. "Uh, Any lemon, milk, sugar? 
I said, uh, no, no, just the T is fine. The AD ordered, Joshua, just the T. Yes, sir. So go get the T and come back. Get the T, come back. Understand? Joshua nodded and started to leave. And I called out, Joshua. And he stopped and turned back to me and our eyes met. And Joshua smiled. All I could say was, I'm sorry. Joshua turned and started walking back through the crowd of extras and all those clansmen. And suddenly a group of men moved close together, tightening their ranks, blocking him. Then others gathered around him on either side and the air became heavy. You could feel the spark of contagion flying through the crowd and the set was absolutely silent. Joshua stood still, looking up at the men in front of him. Never said a word. After a moment, they opened their ranks and allowed him to pass. Joshua took a few steps, stopped, and turned back to me once more and called up to the stage. Mister, you keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a real good job. And don't you worry about me. I'm going to be fine. Joshua headed back through the crowd. From the stage, I was able to watch the entire group of 2,000 part and form a pathway for him. And a different type of contagion touched us all. What I learned that night about courage from that little boy, surrounded by all those clansmen. In an instant, I saw the courage was not what Hollywood depicts it to be in the movies, full of bravado, kicking down doors, blasting away the enemy. It was just walking to get a cup of tea. Joshua showed me that courage wasn't the absence of fear, but continuing on in the face of it, continuing on against the natural obstacles that life has put before us with heart and with dignity. I never saw Joshua again after that night. I've always wondered what happened to him if he succeeded and found happiness, or not. I don't even have a photo of him. This story will have to do. That was Contagion, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, why don't you tell people how they can reach you this week if they'd like to do that? Well, I think the best way I have found to get a hold of me is at tobolowskyfiles.com. And that's, <laughs> I have to spell it, I do it. T is in Tom, O, B is in boy, O, L, O, W, S, K, Y, the Russian spelling. And, uh, once you're at that site, you could see where to order a STBP movie at stbpmovie.com. Also, my Facebook and Twitter are there. Every, everything you need to get a hold of me. Then. We should also say that that story was, in fact, uh, in some ways kind of an adaptation of a story from Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, which is a great movie that you should check out at stbpmovie.com. Uh, and it, it very much inspired the podcast. I'm sure uh, that uh, long-time listeners will, will already have uh, uh, own a copy. But if you're new and you want more stories, go to stbpmovie.com. And if you'd like to reach me, you can email me at slashfilmcast at gmail.com or find everything else I do 
at SlashFilm.com. One last thing we got to point out to people is that uh, we are switching to a new schedule starting with uh, this uh, part of Season 2 of the Tobolowski Files, meaning that uh, it's probably going to be two weeks from today when you'll hear the next episode of the Tobolowski Files. Uh, so check us out in two weeks, and uh, that's what it's going to probably be like for the rest of uh, the semester, for me at least, as I, uh, <laughs> as I navigate... Uh, you know, being in grad school and also trying to produce the Tobolowski Files. But there is one thing I wanted to mention again as well, which is that uh, there are currently 38 episodes of the Tobolowski Files prior to this one, uh, which means I think, what, about 20 to 30 hours of Tobolowski storytelling, a massive amount by any measure. And I know for a fact that many of you haven't listened to all of the stories. So if you are craving more Tobolowski files during, your, uh, during this week interim period, um, go and check out the rest of the stories at TobolowskiFiles.com. Download them all, own them, cherish them, listen to them over and over again, and most importantly, tell your friends about them. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks, and have a great week in the meantime. Bye-bye.